0: Hello and welcome to GIST Radio. We are a casual radio station where we broadcast when we have something to say. GIST stands for getting the shit together and we broadcast important interviews and information for artists and creatives of all kinds. For more information on GIST, please log into our website at www.gyst-ink.com where you will find free resources, software, and publications for artists. You can email us and let us know what you would like to hear about at info at gyst-ink dot com. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in with me, your GIST radio host, Kara Tome for what will definitely prove to be a fascinating conversation with my guest, Miranda Wright. Miranda is the founder and co-director of the Center for Sustainable Practice in the Arts and the founder, executive director, and a producer with Los Angeles Performance Practice. Both are innovative networks to support artists who produce groundbreaking artwork. The Center for Sustainable Practice in the Arts provides a network of resources to artists and arts organizations designed to enable sustainable practices in art making through environmentalism, economic stability, and strengthened cultural infrastructure. Los Angeles Performance Practice is an infrastructure comprised of a network of independent artists and companies who create theatrical experiences through innovative approaches to collaboration, technology, and social engagement. So there are a lot of strong, intellectual, interesting words in those descriptions. They kind of tear tear off each other, and I know that Miranda sees her practice as a combination of all these things. There's so much to talk about, so I'm going to welcome Miranda to the show now. Hi, Miranda.
1: Hi, Kara. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I'm very excited and interested to hear all about these two projects. Well, your myriad of projects under the umbrella of these two organizations. So let's just dive right in. Um, In 2008, while you were a grad student at CalArts, you uh, have your MFA producing from the school, um, Miranda formed the Center for Sustainable Practices in the Arts, which I will now call CSPA from now on, um, with a fellow student, a fellow grad student at CalArts. So I want you to just talk about the idea of how you, the two of you came up with you know, the idea of having this network, and within that explanation, I want to talk about you know what is sustainable practice. So go ahead and start talking about how this came about.
1: Sure. Well, the CSPA was founded with Ian Garrett. And as you said, we were studying together. Uh, We both have backgrounds in theater and theater production. And through the curriculum at CalArts, we we took a course called um, uh, Sustainable Theater. And we were spending a lot of time thinking about the amount of waste that goes into theatrical production and what ends up in the landfill after maybe a short production run. So we started to to talk more about what sustainability means in performance and in theater specifically but then it quickly expanded to all of the arts disciplines and the more we educated ourselves about sustainability in the arts um the more we realized it really went far beyond environmental implications so so sustainable development is is defined um by UNESCO uh, by uh, by including economy the environment and social equity, Um, and more recently, a lot of organizations are adding culture and cultural infrastructure as sort of a fourth pillar of sustainability and sustainable development. So the work that we do um, really involves gathering a bunch of information from information partners all over the world, mostly in the U.S. and Europe, and centralizing that information uh, and a list of toolkits for artists who are interested in thinking about sustainability. And then we highlight right. work by different artists.
0: Okay, and you do this through an incredible website. It's an information-rich uh, website that everyone should go to. It's at sustainablepractice.org, and there you have a, just a lot of information on the subject. And your partners contribute information, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, we actually syndicate um, several different blog posts. So our website is a is a source of centralized information from probably 10 or 12 different uh other blog postings that are happening sources.
0: Actually, let's back up a little bit though. So you decided to start an informational source for uh supporting people who do this kind of work. How did you get these global partners? How did you get from there to there? I mean, it looks very well supported and just so solid now. It's, you know, several years later, but go back a little bit to the the beginnings of just what did you do, throw up a website and start blogging? And uh, how did it come about?
1: Sure. Well, Ian luckily is very skilled in, in building websites and, and completing that. So that was really under his domain. And within the first month of deciding to to found the CSPA we had heard about a conference happening in London, so we both jumped on a plane. I was actually working for a hotel chain at the time, so we were able to get free hotel stays and found some really affordable airfare, and we flew to London and and just started attending conferences and meeting people um, who had similar interests, and then as the website became more and more popular, we've been approached actually by a number of different organizations who – who just want to pitch in and, and also have their information listed, and it's a very reciprocal relationship. So they get more readership because of our postings, and we have this great resource of information. So it actually emerged out of these like, in-person meetings at a number of conferences from probably 2009 all the way until last April.
0: Can you give us an example of just, like, kind of pick one of your partners off the top of your head or maybe a partner who has posted something interesting recently and just, like, give us an example of what they do and what kind of posting they made so we can get into some, you know, visualizing what it really is, what kind of information. Sure.
1: Sure. One of our favorite information partners is Julie's Bicycle, and they are an organization based in London. They, um, They provide toolkits and information for very specific, I guess, specific guidebooks for everything from touring music events to theater to um, toolkits for green gallery and museum installation. So they have all of these toolkits plus a great blog, and they'll feed their blog information to us and we'll link to their toolkits as well.
0: Okay, so what is a green gallery installation toolkit? What is that? What is it?
1: It really, it's a a nice guideline on um, what kind of materials and uh, chemicals go into installation for the gallery. So what are the um, lowest impacts that you can make when you are installing a new work or installing a sculpture? Or in the gallery museum world, you're building these false walls pretty regularly and tearing those down. So just some general practices on how to reduce that building, how to reuse some of those. Uh, pieces of construction and how to do it with materials that are safe for you to be around and, and safe to disassemble.
0: Well, I don't think a lot of people in the art world think about that at all. So, I it's wonderful to have, yeah, this this thought process start and and grow. And it's it's about uh, it reducing the the footprint on the planet. I mean, we do it at home, right? We recycle and, you know, I recycle my stuff. <laughs> you know, I try to be as right. green as I can in that way at home. But maybe, in, you know, and maybe workplaces go paperless. I mean, it's kind of the basics of daily life are there and people obviously are, most people do some level of that. But when you get into serious, you know, corporations or even the art world, uh do you find that this is a new idea, and and
1: how, or how is it being... So ...is in working with other organizations and working with theater companies or museums and galleries, um, the shift is actually, instead of talking about how you're reusing material to save money, um, talk about your intentions to actually make a positive contribution. And one thing that's really interesting, the the arts have this great capacity to influence people, more so than even maybe government initiatives. So... If a theater space, for example, posts public signage or in their program talks about their reducing efforts, it has the capacity to influence all of those audience members and patrons that come through the doors. Um, So almost like setting a good example that could be translated into daily life for hundreds of patrons at a time. So that's one of the most exciting things to me, I think, when we look at the environmental side of it all.
0: Right, and so it's happening in a way. You're saying, in a way, in a grassroots level, in terms of individual artists committing to this, and then tr- and then kind of trickling up into galleries. What about trickling up to major museums? Do you see that happening?
1: Materials reuse. So it's becoming kind of popular and reaching the mainstream. But it's you know always a question of resource at the end of the day. Even when we talk about talk to organizations about ways to be more sustainable. The message that always reaches them the most quickly are um, ways that you can save money in your organization by cutting down your electricity bill, cutting down your paper bill, um, uh, greening up your utilities, that sort of thing catches the attention of some of the smaller organizations more. Easily. Enough hours
0: in the day to do all of what you do, but um, you also do a quarterly journal with CSBA, and you're on your tenth issue of that. So, what made you go into print, and what kind of you know readership do you have, and what is in the uh, journal? What kind of articles?
1: Sure. Well, the journal um, the journal could could contain anything. We we try to base each issue on a theme or a topic. Um, they usually highlight events that are happening or give a report on certain events or conferences. They also always feature an artist, so they'll, there's always a nice spread of some great visual artwork or dance or theater work, and we've even shown some stills from films that have been produced recently. Um, so we try to highlight artists that are working in the same vein or working along the terms of sustainability, and we also try to use that as a, a place to anchor information that we feel needs to exist for a little bit longer. And the reason we decided to do a print publication is just because, you know, we're so so uncertain of the sustainability of information and how long information will last Or they could order a print edition for $10 off of the MadCloud website, Um but our readership, is it's not huge, but it does span. <laughs> it spans internationally. We have a couple of members of the CSPA in um, Mexico. We have quite a few members in Europe, specifically Western Europe, and then into Canada and across the United States. So uh, the quarterly is one of our membership benefits as well.
0: It's great that you have a global reach. I think that's incredible. Um, you are the editor of the quarterly. People can go to your website uh, for for this, which is LosAngelesLivePerformance.org, and see, uh, of course, you're linking to all of those groups. And so, I want to ask, maybe we could take as an example the recent uh, performance that you produced called Cooking Oil. Uh, I was there. I saw the piece. It was really, really wonderful and illuminating and thought-provoking work. It was performed at a warehouse space at Adwater Crossing in Los Angeles. And um, very effective. I was very impressed. And I want to talk a little bit about how that keeps be very actually gratified with this project. So talk about this project, its impetus and um, and then its development.
1: Great. Sure. Uh, yes, this project was incredibly rewarding for me. It was the outcome of, I think, close to four years of, of really hard work. Um, the playwright, Deborah Asimwe, moved to Los Angeles back in 2006 and we were students together uh, and also the director Emily Mendelson came to CalArts too so so this is an, again another thing that evolved out of my relationships that were developed at CalArts um in two thousand and ten, after we had all graduated, Emily gave me a call. I had just come off of another international exchange with artists in Cuba and uh and Emily was just looking for advice. so we sat down at a coffee shop, the coffee table with, that isn 't there anymore and um you know met weekly coming up with with some strong ideas for how to move forward with the the producing work and we were lucky enough to receive funding from the city uh, uh, the cultural exchange international I
0: lead into this because i want specifics a little bit more of like so because this is a piece that is very much in keeping i think with your mission of collaborative and community minded and it was very political in its plot line can you describe the plot line and some of the physicality of the piece itself
1: Sure. So the the piece is about a young girl named Maria who lives in a village um somewhere in a developing country. We don't we don't place it anywhere specific. And this village is receiving um US aid, foreign aid in the form of cooking oil. The oil is given to the politician to distribute, but instead of distributing the oil freely, the politician actually sells the oil and hires Maria and her father to assist in selling the oil to the local community. Um, Maria is interested in going to school, but her family doesn't have the money to pay for school fees, so she ends up selling her share of the oil outside of the border and um, pocketing the money.
0: Quite illuminating. Obviously, this is based on facts of the situation in Africa. i mean why is cooking oil controlled like that is it like as for an american brain i'm sorry i just can't i don't it's hard to get my head around it you know why is cooking oil politicized and controlled so that the local people can't have access to it
1: it's actually yeah it's actually not a not a specific problem with cooking oil but more about the corruption in the aid distribution system um Oftentimes, donors or donor communities very different from actually attaching a value to it. So when we were in Kampala the first year, there were actually audience members who said, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather pay for it. I'd rather pay for what I need than get something that I don't need for free. Um, Another common situation that happens might be that the donor community doesn't actually ask what kind of cooking oil is required. So the recipient community might receive an oil that they wouldn't normally cook with, so it ends up being given out for free and used as hair
0: instruments that were very that came out of the culture. And it was just it was a very um, it was a very kind of cutting edge feeling uh, production that you are supporting all of these you know breaking of the rules so to speak and bringing in these <laughs> concepts for an LA audience or or a, or an African audience. So I really really appreciated seeing it, and I want to congratulate you on that on that piece Thank you so much. I hope it gets to go even more around the world because I saw on your website that you basically once you produce something, it's also there for people to uh want to have to come to their community practices and supporting artists who are out there doing performance work in these ways. And so I really want to urge people to go to your both websites and educate themselves on that as well. Thank you for being my guest today.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Kara.
0: You're welcome. And GIST Radio is a product of gistinc.com, and our website also provides crucial resources for artists on every subject you could think of, Uh, any kind of information about furthering one's professional artistic career. So please log on to gist for free resources.